You're listening to Scottish Independence Podcasts, and this is the second episode of Rising Clyde, a programme that looks at the issues and challenges in the climate justice movement here in Scotland and around the world. And in the second episode, Ian Bruce, the presenter, is talking to two guests, Maggie Chapman, who is Scottish Green Party MSP for the North East Region, and Ryan Morrison, who's a Just Transition campaigner at Friends of the Earth Scotland. So, Rising Clyde, War and the Cost of Living. Hello and welcome to Independence Live. I'm Ian Bruce in Glasgow and this is Rising Clyde, the programme where we'll be looking at the key issues and the big challenges facing the struggle for climate justice here in Scotland and around the world. In this second episode, we want to dig into the new situation thrown up by the cost of living crisis and the war in Ukraine, its implications for climate change and for climate justice here in Scotland. And in particular, we want to try to understand the new challenges facing the struggle to phase out North Sea oil and gas. To help us understand that, we're very happy to have with us Maggie Chapman. She is Scottish Green Party MSP for the North East region and Ryan Morrison, Just Transition campaigner for Friends of the Earth Scotland. Thank you so much to both of you for being with us. Um, There's climate activists turning up for workers in the same way that they turned up for us during COP26 and that the trade unions turned up for us is so important to prove that link because the same thing that sacked P&O, the same fundamental economics of the free market, the same thing that's pouring petrol on our planet, they share a root cause and we share a fight. Here, uh, protesting at the site of Sea Peak's offices in Glasgow. Sea Peak are one of the biggest gas shipping firms uh, in the world. Most of the oil that we do dig out in North Sea gets sent abroad anyway, and then we import from places like Russia or Saudi Arabia or other corrupt uh, states guilty of human rights abuses. So we're calling for accelerated production of domestic renewables for both sake of the climate crisis, cost of living crisis, and to disrupt this war. Uh, the other day we had the announcement that, unfortunately, Shell is actively reconsidering going ahead with Campbell. In the next two to three months, the UK government wants to approve a new gas field, which is also owned by Shell, um, called the Jackdaw gas field. But despite the current political context we find ourselves in, and despite how hard it is to get out of bed every day knowing what we know, as people who understand the reality and untold suffering of the climate crisis, despite how hard that is, we need to hold each other and lift each other up because backing down is not an option and letting these projects go ahead is not an option. So these three moments, which I think illustrate some of the aspects of this new situation, climate activists with trade unions showing solidarity for the workers sacked by P&O, uh, then we saw Glasgow calls out polluters blockading the Glasgow offices of a bit major gas shipping company, Sea Peak, in solidarity with Ukraine. And lastly, the uh, Fridays for Future global climate strike focusing on the future of the North Sea. So let's jump straight in with you, Ryan. I wonder, do you think UK government policy on extracting gas from the North Sea has changed? or is changing as a result of this new situation, the rise in prices or the war in Ukraine. I mean, we still haven't seen that new energy policy, which I think has been delayed, what, three or four times in the last few weeks. So, you know, what is going on? What can we expect? 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think we've seen uh, a shift in tone in some of the narratives, maybe, on the policy around oil and gas, but what we haven't seen is any shift in the actual position around what will happen to the future of North Sea oil and gas production. So the policy position of maximising economic recovery remains the priority. That remained the priority last year. That's still the government's position. Even in this situation, what we hear quite often is we want to grow renewables, we want to grow our domestic renewable capacity, but they also say they want to back North Sea oil and gas production. Whatever that means, it's not clear. But what we do know is that last year, when the pressure of COP was on, they were challenged on oil and gas production policy. They said they would create a climate compatibility checkpoint, which looks to us very much seems to be a, a way to try and greenwash future license environments, even though we know they are inconsistent with climate limits. So maximising economic recovery remains, but at the same time, there's a lot more pressure for um, a rapid rise in renewable capacity from the UK government, for sure. But what about this this, this threat? To, do, we, do we expect a very short-term, fast-tracking of some of those new fields? I think that's... So there is... Pressure from industry, I think. There's a lot of calls from industry for that. I think we've seen the trade body, uh, Oil and Gas UK, now calling itself Offshore Energies UK, uh, have been, I would suggest, taking advantage, trying to take advantage of the current situation um, in order to justify future licensing round and green lighting of uh, fields that are currently waiting for approval. It's a particularly dangerous way forward, I think. It's also quite disingenuous of the very fields that are currently waiting for approvals of consent, so these are fields that already have licenses. 75% of those reserves are oil, not gas, so they offer no solution to that current problem. They also offer no solution to the current problem because they will still take potentially 10 years uh, to get into operation, by which point they're um, not uh, able to help in the situation that we're in. Right, right. Maggie, I want to get on to the Scottish government's uh, position in just a moment. But in terms of, you know, you're, 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 you represent the northeastern region. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what are people, is there a change in the mood there? Are, are people's expectations different? I mean, what, how, do, how do you think it's impacting in that sense? Uh, I mean, I, I think the last, the last year in, in Scottish politics has, has seen a shift. You know, as, as a Green being elected in the Northeast um, was significant last May. And I think having spoken to oil and gas workers, having spoken to people in or associated with the oil and gas industry, I think there is recognition that that is the, that is the, the energy industry of the past. It is an industry in decline. And what is really, really important is that we within Scotland do whatever it is whatever it is that is necessary to enable the transition away from oil and gas to be a genuinely just one now there's lots of discussion about what a just transition actually means but i think for me there there are a couple of crucial elements there has to be a very very clear um collaboration with and co-creation of the future with oil and gas workers and with the communities that are going to be most affected by many of by, by by the energy shifts that we know we need to see and I think that that engagement with oil and gas workers, that engagement with communities, that has to be central to to, any, to our transition planning. Alongside that, we need to make sure that vested interests, Ryan there talked about um, the, what was oil and gas UK, you know, or, or offshore energies, that they they have significant interests in in our energy future and i think we need to make sure that actually they aren't the ones driving the change that it's the workers and the communities that are driving the change we need to see more broadly i think 
over the last few weeks, we've seen repeated attempts by the Scottish Conservatives to put pressure on Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish Government and, and the Greens um, to, to roll back on our commitments around just transition, but also to, to say, actually, we need to look again at Cambo, we need to look again at oil oil and gas fields in the North Sea. That's exactly the wrong thing to be doing. Our, our position remains the same. We need to be investing in the energies of, of the future now. And any, any money that is spent, that is invested in the fossil fuel industry now, is money not going into our renewables future. And that's where, that's where the balance is really, really important. We need to make sure that we shift that in favour of renewables, because we know that that's not only going to be where we get cheaper energy supplies, electricity, renewable electricity is the cheapest form of electricity at the moment. You know, so it deals with the, the cost of living crisis. It also means that we aren't um, beholden to Russian gas. So it, it removes our reliance on oppressive regimes like, like Putin's Russia. And it also then obviously helps us tackle the climate emergency. I mean, I want to come back to the issue of a just transition, because obviously that's crucial. But just in terms of Scottish government policy on the extraction of oil and gas itself, when Nicola Sturgeon came out against Cambo just days after the end of COP, that seemed like a significant moment. And it felt as if that had a real impact on Shell's at least initial decision yeah. to, to, to pull out. Now they kind of seem to be umming and ahhing a little bit. So in other words, Scottish government position start, appeared to change and, in a, and, and seemed to have an, that change seemed to have an important impact. Mm-hmm. Will that change hold? Because one thing is your position in the Green Party and the position of the SNP, of course, is somewhat different. You know, at least there are, at least there are nuances of difference, right? Um, you know, will they hold to that, you know, because before they had this position of, well, it's not really our responsibility and, you know, but, you know, maybe, maybe not kind of thing, you know. Um, so, so will they hold to at least verbally opposing new oil and gas fields? I, I mean, that, that's, certain, that's certainly what we've seen in, in the last couple of weeks when, when both um, the Cabinet Secretary, Michael Matheson, and, and Nicola Sturgeon have been questioned on this in the chamber. They have both held firm. They've, they've, they've held, held that position. It's certainly the discussions that we continue to have with the Scottish Government on, on a regular basis. You know, it, it's very, very clear that we, we, are, we are expecting them to hold that position. And whilst we do have... As you say, we, 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 well, I think, I think we have a, a difference in nuance, a difference in um, maybe speed in between the parties of, of how we want the just transition to go. And we also, I think, have a fundamental difference about any future of, of fossil fuels as, as you know, uh, not an energy industry as, as other forms of, of industry. I, I think there's, there has to be a, a very, very clear... Uh, position from the government and from the Scottish government, and I, I don't see that changing. I think it's become clear that the future for Scotland, the future, the future for Scotland's energy system, is in renewables, and we need to make sure we get on with the job of of making that the reality. Ryan, is there more that you think the Scottish government could or should be doing? I mean, it, it has been very useful to see Nicola Sturgeon and Michael Maxon both defending. Uh, that position in justifying why in the face of some of what the Conservative pressure has been. I think particularly recently when these calls for Campbell to be licensed as a 
as a response to what's going on now, which is obviously so disingenuous as a new license for a field that could take um, years, was very valuable. It's really important to see um, the First Minister laying out why exactly that is not a reasonable answer to this and what the real solutions are. In terms of the other Scottish Government policy, we're, we're expecting an energy strategy this year with some just transition plans, and there is quite a lot that we would hope to see change. And I think, yeah, so the Scottish Government is committed to doing a new energy strategy. The last one was in 2017. Uh, even though policy around oil and gas is largely reserved, uh, offshore oil and gas is reserved, um, that last energy strategy included the Scottish Government's absolute commitment to maximising economic recovery as well. Uh, so they were saying they would do everything that they could as a devolved administration to support that industry. So obviously we would expect now in this context to see something very different. But I think what we'll also be looking for is what are some of the other industry proposals that are uh, attempting to undermine what is actually needed in the energy transition. And I'm looking particularly at things like uh, fossil hydrogen, um, which relies on huge amounts of natural gas and is incredibly energy intensive and inefficient. Uh, and also things like carbon capture and storage. Are we going to see an energy strategy that commits us to new, essentially new infrastructure for the fossil fuel industry. Um, and that, that will be some of the key, I think, deciding factors about whether or not this is this is going to be an energy strategy that takes the Scottish Government on a sidestep of planning a, a really serious transition away from fossil fuels, as opposed to planning for a transition without future licences potentially, but still relying on fossil fuels in the economy for energy. Maggie, let me try and, since Ryan's brought up this issue of a new Scottish mm -hmm. Government energy policy, let me try and link that to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is this whole narrative of net zero, which, you know, the, the Scottish Government, the SNP, rather, leadership, appears to still espouse uh, and, and use as part of its arguments. And of course, you know, one of the main arguments put forward by the climate justice movement around the COP26 coalition and all its various different components um, was precisely, you know, net zero is not zero and all the, and therefore, you know, all the offsets and so forth that go along with it, you know, are, you know, false solutions and so forth, the mm -hmm. kind of thing Ryan was just talking about. So can we expect, I mean, what are the key, what, two things, what are the key issues that you as the Green Party want to see included and or changed in this new Scottish Government energy policy? And will we see, could we see some kind of a break with that net zero narrative? Gosh, okay. Um, I'll take them in, in reverse order. The net zero narrative, I think, is so well ingrained in Scottish, UK and global um, discussions, but both policy and, and sort of strategic thinking in this. I think it's problematic because we know that, as, as, as you said, it's not, it's not zero carbon. It, you know, we aren't looking at a zero carbon strategy with, with, with the, way, the way things are going. And that, that is a problem. That's a problem for a whole range of, of reasons. And the, the, the recent discussions around, you know, keeping 1.5 degrees alive, keeping that hope. I, th I think one of the really important things for us to keep reiterating is 1.5 degrees uh, global temperature rise, rises still signifies destruction and death for many, many um, habitats, many ecosystems, many people in, in different parts of the world. So 1.5 is not a success. It is the least worst option here. Um, so so I, I think I think as Greens, we've probably got some work still to do within the Scottish government and, and within discussions across Scottish politics to 
yes, okay, do we have to live with the, the net zero language at the moment? But really, actually, what we are looking for is a zero carbon future, a, a future that does not continue to pump carbon dioxide and, and, and other climate changing emissions in, in, into our atmosphere. I think I think the question. I mean, just, just let me press you a little bit, bit yeah. a little further, because I mean, I'm sure you're not going to tell me about secret, obviously, you know, de de detailed negotiations that the Greens are having with the SNP, because you obviously can't. But what I'm, I'm assuming you are in discussions uh, over this new energy policy. So I'm just wondering what, from the Green Party point of view, the SGP point of view, is what are the key points you want to insist on, you know, and think you can insist on. I mean, I, I, I suppose. So, so first, firstly, to say, I'm I'm not the the party's energy spokesperson. Um, so I'm I, I'm not involved in the nitty gritty of, of that on, on a weekly basis. Um, that goes to to Mark Ruskell, my 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 colleague. Um, but I suppose th th there there are key issues. Ryan, you know, talked about uh, carbon capture, utilization, storage, and and hydrogen. We we want to we. Our, our position as set out in the Butte House Agreement that we signed with the Scottish Government last year, it's very, very clear that we have a different position. The Scottish Greens have a, have a different position on CCUS and hydrogen to the Scottish Government. I think we would probably be wanting to fir firm up some of the commitments around that and actually have a very, very clear outline and, and plan of what, if any, future those industries are going to play, given, as Ryan rightly says, that the reliance on, on a, a long-term future for oil and gas that they will have. I think that there are a couple of other things, and it goes back to what I was talking about earlier around the just transition. There's no point in having an energy strategy, an energy strategy that talks about net zero or even um, zero carbon, for that matter, that doesn't have a very, very clear commitment to the, the kind of alternative industries that we are going to need to see investment in, the kind of approach and the, the value that the voices of the oil and gas workers and the communities most directly affected by this transition, how they will be heard, how they will not only be heard and, and listened to, but actually how they will be incorporated into the planning and, and the development of, of our future energy systems. So those, those I think, are, are, are two of the key areas that we'll be looking for very, very strong commitments from, from the Scottish Government on. I think, I think there are other issues as well, and this is where the, the, uh, the d differences between what is reserved and what, what are devolved powers comes into it. I think we need, we need to be much better at seeing the connections between energy which is reserved, and things that are very, very clearly devolved, like local planning, like um, a, a certain ownership of, of land, of, of resources, of, of, of rights, those, those kinds of things. And I'm not always sure we, we get the, the joining up of, of these different issues as effectively as we could. So I, I think that's another area. It's around policy coherence, but I think more, important, more importantly, it's not seeing energy as a thing in isolation, but it's seeing it alongside, you know, if, if we're looking at our future energy needs, what, what are we saying about our building standards? What are we saying about our transport networks? What are we saying about our, our rail networks? All of these these kinds of things have to be part of that, that discussion and they have to be at least referenced in the new energy strategy. Because if our strategy only talks to a very, very narrow understanding of and definition of the energy industry, then then 
well, we, we, we've missed a trick. The climate emergency notwithstanding, I think I think it's we have to have uh, we have to have that broader broader view and and broader thinking in, in that strategy. I mean, is it possible to argue for a, a just transition that does guarantee no job losses for North Sea oil workers and you know train appropriate training? I think one of their complaints at the moment, I understand, is that they're not being given. Often they have to pay for their own training if they want to shift sectors or shift jobs, that kind of thing. You know, but that it's not just shouldn't be seen as a one for one. You know, like come off an oil rig and go onto on, onto a wind farm kind of thing. You know, but that there are many other things that. North Sea oil workers and related industry people could be doing in a new vision of an economy, precisely all the areas you just mentioned, homes, transport, care, etc. You know, you know, that that kind of an integral vision is that do we are, are we getting towards that? Um, it's I, I think I have to say, yes, we are, because if, if we're not, then then where, where is our hope? Um, but, but, but I think I think what one it, it, it's challenging. It, it, it is challenging, and I think purely from an economic point of view, it's hugely challenging. As you say, making sure we've got the education systems and structures right, that we have this, the skills training in the places where they need to be. Um, that that's that's a hugely um, big. It's a huge ask, but it's a really really important one. You know, I think. If we if we think what happened on the first of April with energy uh, home home energy prices skyrocketing, people really really going to be feeling a, a very very tight squeeze on on their their home finances. One of the things that we we've been talking about and talking about and talking about is how do we get the massive retrofit of everybody's homes. How do we roll that out? How do we scale that up in in a in a quick and effective way for people? You know, it's not good enough to say, okay, now we'll we'll, we'll have this all done by 2032. We need it done now, and I think we know we don't we don't necessarily have the right number of people with the skills to do that. Never mind the materials that we need to deliver that, the supply chains that we need to deliver that. So so there are a whole range of things that we are needing to get in place and get in place very very quickly are we going to get it all right no of course we're not but i think i think we need to make sure that we are as focused on this as we possibly can be because it is that that, that is the only way that we not only see the 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 transition away from oil and gas and, and the support for the workers that, that you you mentioned there ian but it, significantly actually the effects for people the positive effects on their energy bills the positive effects on on people's uh, you know co uh, standards of living living in warmer drier safer more secure homes and we we, we know this is possible that the retrofit and work that was done in glasgow uh, I, I, i'm in aberdeen there are tower blocks in aberdeen that are horrendously drafty horrendously damp and, and cold we need the Scottish Government working with Aberdeen City Council and, and others to make sure that we get the same kind of retrofitting, cladding, insulation, uh, heat pumps, all of those things into these into these uh, residences as fast as possible, because that will have a material impact, a positive material impact on people's um, home finances. And it will also have it will help us drive that change away from oil and gas. We've only got a couple more minutes left, so uh, I just want to try and bring this back to where we started. In a sense, the the, the, the current situation 
um, as a result of the war in Ukraine and the, the gas, rising gas prices. I mean, Ryan, you pointed out, uh, and it's something I've heard pointed out often, and it seems blindingly obvious, really, you know, that the, the arguments for digging more out of the North Sea are fairly ridiculous in as much as they're obviously not going to do anything to resolve the immediate problems in, in terms of gas prices and, and so forth, um, because, you know, we're talking about long-term things. And, and so that's a very strong argument, clearly. But doesn't that same argument actually apply to our own solutions? You know, that's to say, you know, OK, so it, obviously the answer is renewables, but that also takes quite a long time. Well, a certain amount of time. It's not going to solve the problem in the next few weeks or months or year, you know. So what do we do in the short term? You know, what, what are the short term policies we need, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the sort of average time span for even an onshore wind farm could be between six and ten years, maybe. Um, but I, I, and I guess what's important to say is that particularly the short term, well, the short term is about dealing with what is going to be absolutely extremely devastating social consequences of these price rises to millions of people into um, fuel poverty. The solutions have to be uh, supporting people in their bills um, and making sure that people are not left in poverty by what happens now. Everything else is then building towards a different energy system. Uh, there are things that we could start doing quicker. So Maggie mentioned we could start uh, a wide uh, uh, nationwide retrofit program with insulate people's homes, we could electrify energy uh, heating systems. Uh, that's something that could start much quicker than any new generation of, of renewables. How long would it be realistic to say have, I don't know, a third of Scottish homes retrofitted? How long does I that take? I couldn't put an exact year on that. <laughs> <laughs> Very difficult. But, I mean, you can, you can look at some of the things that are going on now. And obviously there are challenges. So I think Maggie mentioned the tenement project that happened around the corner for me. Um, in the south side of Glasgow, that took quite a long time. Tenements are a particular challenge, but it would be possible to roll out in other areas far quicker. And we're seeing good examples of electrification of heat happening. For instance, yeah. project in Glasgow using water, uh, heat from the water in the Clyde. Uh, example in Gateshead recently of um, a house being connected up to a uh, ground source heat pump using water from an abandoned coal mine, uh, which has meant that that person uh, had not had a price rise for their bills recently using um, the the reservoirs that were there. So those, I can't, I can't say precisely how many years it would take to get a third of houses in Scotland up, but that is something that you could start doing quicker than new renewable generations would be even. But at the same time, we do have to have our eye on not just building out of this crisis, out of this energy system, but also about climate change and the climate crisis and what we need for the future. So there is a real issue about making sure that our energy systems are uh, secure and resilient and can't build out of this crisis by building further into another one really important that we start to look at what some of the fundamental flaws are here. And they are bigger than just issues of uh, pollution or even just um, issues of the current gas prices. People are profiting from the absolute devastation being caused in people's lives now as prices go up, but they are also profiting from uh, what is going on with climate change. That's a real issue. We are dealing with incredibly powerful vested interests who quite often have the ear of government uh, very handily. And that's an issue that we need to face when we look to move on from this. What are we building away from? Why is it that it's possible for this to happen? That's an issue of where we get our energy from. But it's also an issue of who's in charge of it, who has their hands in, yeah. uh, on in control. So uh, we're going to have to close up right now. But Maggie, did you want to come back on that very briefly? I, I, I suppose just, just the only thing to say is we need to be working as hard as we can to get onshore renewables back in our systems in, in Scotland. We, we know that 
onshore uh, wind, wind farms can take 10, 15 years to, to, to get into place. The vast, vast, vast majority of that com comes down to planning. So if there are ways that we can not, not necessarily short circuit or make them, them less effective planning processes, but if, if there are ways that we can look at some of the other systems and the other restrictions or, or, or other limiting areas that have made some of the onshore wind wind farms take so long then that's something that we should be doing and i appreciate that that is something that is reserved um the the, the support for for onshore onshore wind but if if that's something that we can extract from the uk government in its new energy strategy i think that will be significant again it comes back to look at, as, as i said before looking at where these things intersect you know we need we need to make sure our planning system is ready to go we need to make sure our education and skill systems are ready to go we need to make sure that we've got the supply chains in place it's not just a matter of turning off oil and gas and turning on wind or tidal or, or wave or any, anything like that it, it's the systems around that and there's an awful lot of work we've still got to do Absolutely. And there's a lot more that we need to talk about, too. There's at least two upcoming programmes you've just mentioned there, which we need to talk about renewables specifically. And we need to talk about land and how it's who yeah. controls it and who plans it and all the rest of it. Yeah. But thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, really nice to have a, that discussion with you. And, um, you know, I hope it's uh, sparked some thoughts amongst our viewers. Thank you very much indeed to both of you. And we'll be back next month. Thank you for watching. That was Rising Clyde, a Scottish climate justice show here on Scottish Independence Podcast. Ian Bruce was talking to Maggie Chapman, MSP for the North East Region, and Ryan Morrison, Just Transition campaigner at Friends of the Earth. Rising Clyde is produced monthly. Scottish Independence Podcast is part of Independence Live Media. You can find our website on podcasts.independencelive.net or just Google for Scottish Independence Podcasts.